And welcome back to the KI Prime podcast with me, Alina Jenkins. In this final section of the series, we're looking back at previous winners. And in this episode, it's the turn of Professor Henk Schmidt, who was the inaugural winner in 2004. Professor Schmidt is a professor of psychology at Erasmus University's Faculty of Social Sciences and founding dean of its problem-based psychology curriculum. Between 2009 and 2013, he was the Vice-Chancellor or Rector Magnificus of Erasmus University in Rotterdam. His research in the field of medical education is outstanding and highly original. His special research areas are problem-based learning, clinical reasoning and the acquisition of expertise in medicine. Professor Schmidt's work has had a great impact on the research field and many of his former students have become prominent and influential researchers. With a background in psychology, he ended up, by chance, at Limburg University in Maastricht in the mid-1970s, where he began to play a vital role in evaluating and developing Maastricht's medical school's problem-based curriculum. When I spoke to him at the beginning of 2021, he told me the 70s and early 80s were a pioneering time for medical education and problem-solving. Yes, the 70s. That was an exciting period for medical education and, and also for education in general. We had a feeling that the world could be made anew, that everything was possible. One of the ideas arising in that period was that medical knowledge was growing at such an explosive rate that medical students could not learn everything. So why not teach them thinking? Why not teach them reasoning? Why not problem-solving, rather than all that knowledge that would become obsolete within a couple of years. This idea was not only prevalent in medicine, but in education in general. I remember that Newell and Simon, Simon was the later Nobel Prize winner, developed a computer program called The General Problem Solver. And the idea behind this computer program was that it would be possible if you had the right heuristics or algorithms to solve problems in any domain. And I must say that this idea was also fostered by Arthur Elstein and colleagues from Michigan State University uh, who wrote a book called Medical Problem Solving. And they showed that Physicians indeed use a particular thinking method, which they called hypothetical deduction. Uh, the idea behind it was that doctors, early in the encounter with a patient, would uh, formulate a number of hypotheses, and that these hypotheses, in turn, would guide information processing and information gathering. Hypothetical deduction was considered for a while the hallmark of expertise. If you mastered this thinking method, you would be considered an expert. And problem-based learning became the testing ground of these ideas. Howard Barrows, a neurologist at McMaster University, was a major proponent of this idea. Why not teach 
student's hypothetical deduction. I must say that I was rather skeptical of this idea for two reasons. First, growth in medical knowledge is indeed exponential. But much of that knowledge is not immediately applicable to clinical medicine. Take, for instance, the example of Crick and Watson, who in the 50s discovered the helix structure of DNA. Only 50 years later, this knowledge becomes applicable in clinical medicine. Our knowledge of uh, infection and inflammation, of course, increases by the day, but the principles behind inflammation and infection do not change that much. So medical students could survive quite easily on knowledge acquired in medical school, in particular because experience is also a crucial factor. You have to see many patients every day in order to develop real expertise in medicine. And there was a second issue. Barrows uh, and Norman and Neufeld at McMaster University, Barrows, the proponent of hypothetical deduction, did in the beginning of the 80s a study of medical problem solving, and they discovered that indeed physicians used the hypothetical deductive method while they tried to solve a problem of a patient. But they also discovered that students use the same methods while encountering a patient. There was one difference. The quality of the hypotheses developed by the physicians was much better than the quality of the hypotheses developed by the medical students. So my conclusion was that knowledge nevertheless plays a role. I was not the only one having this idea. In the early 80s, a small group of medical educators began to meet. Uh, among them, uh, Jeff Norman, my friend and also a winner of the Kaurinska Prize, Vimla Patel from McGill University, Montreal, Paul Feltovich, University of Illinois, Georges Bordage, Université Laval in Quebec. Uh, and we met on the assumption that expertise in medicine is not based on a particular thinking method, but based on lots of knowledge and having the right kind of knowledge and experience. So we would come together, have small conferences. I, I remember one in uh, Quebec City, uh, we would meet at AERA, the American Educational Research uh, Association, and we began to do research. And soon we were able to show that indeed, knowledge is the decisive factor in expertise. Knowledge determines the extent to which you are able to show diagnostic uh, accuracy. In fact, my whole career revolved around the idea of the role of knowledge in learning, in understanding, in problem solving. I, I think I was the first to show that problem-based learning was not a method to make you think, but to acquire knowledge in a special way, namely around interesting or important problems. You said at the beginning how exciting it was. Did you realize you were blazing a trail at the time? No, 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 I, I don't think so. The ideas which 
which I entered the field, my, my ideas about the important role of prior knowledge in learning and problem solving were, uh, in fact, heavily influenced by Karl Popper. Karl Popper is a philosopher of science, and he is very much involved with the issue of progress in science. He describes how scientists work. He is very much involved with the issue of progress in science. He describes how uh, scientists work. According to Popper, they use their existing knowledge of the world, their theories, to formulate hypotheses that are aiming to solve problems in their uh, domain. I saw the the parallel with problem-based learning uh, uh, rather quickly. Uh, Students, like scientists, are confronted with a problem, and they engage in small group discussion about this uh, problem, trying to formulate hypotheses that enable them to explain this problem. And while doing that, they activate whatever they already know about the problem. They activate prior knowledge. They activate, they elaborate on that knowledge. And these activities facilitate the understanding of new information provided by, uh, to them by literature. I also found later on, together with Jerome Rothgans, a colleague of mine in Singapore, that uh, the discussion of a problem also increases situational interest. Students become simply more interested in the subject matter at hand. At the time, my English was was quite poor. I, I could read The Guardian, but I had problems ordering a cup of tea in uh, London. And science was uh, much more local. It was not internationalized to the same extent as it is now. And uh, it, that meant that most of I, my papers I wrote in Dutch. In fact, it took me quite a long time, I think uh, about 10 years, to share these ideas I had with colleagues, the, the ones that I mentioned, and before I began to write in English. In fact, in 1986, I had uh, a first sabbatical in Canada Uh, at McGill University in Montreal and at McMaster University. And it was there that I learned to write properly in English and making myself understandable in your language, at least to some extent. So I had no idea that uh, these ideas would have such influence and, and would change the face of medical education to some extent. Now, I understand one of your great passions is hiking and that some of your best ideas have come from a medical hiking group you created. (laughs) Yeah, hiking is indeed an important activity. It does good things to the brain. And indeed, in 1978, Vic Neufeld and I established the Hiking Group in Medical Education, as we called it. Vic was uh, a vice dean of education at McMaster University, the birthplace of PBL. And he was the director of its PED, the, the Program in Educational Development. It, it remained, however, a, an association of two, uh, but we did a lot of hiking in Canada and later in the Netherlands. Yeah, you were right. Many good ideas emerged while uh, walking. I, I even remember today where I was when I had 
some particular hunches. I know there's a special relationship between the Netherlands and Canada. And if you look at the history of the prize, most of the winners have come from these two countries. So what is it that your country and the Canadians are doing so well in the field of medical education that you're producing such a high level of research? Part of it is coincidence. The right people at the right place uh, at the right time. The chance to mix talent with opportunity. I was not alone in Maastricht. Uh, Wienand Weiner, who was the chair of the Department of Educational Development and Research and is virtually unknown internationally because he did not publish in English, he had a huge influence uh, not only on me but also on Case van der Vleuten, another Karolinska Prize winner from Maastricht. So it it was actually an issue of talent coming together at the right moment. But this is only part of the reasons. A problem-based learning established at McMaster first and Maastricht second was a revolution in medical education in many ways. And initially, it led staff at these institutions insecure. Will this ever work was a question that was quite often asked. So there was a huge need for research around problem-based learning, and this provided us with real career opportunities. Uh, The situation is different in the U.S. and perhaps in the U.K. as well. Research opportunities in these countries are far more dependent on external funding. And this means that these opportunities are most of the time temporal. And hence, most research is carried out by very young PhDs, which is good. But you also need more senior staff to provide continuity. This has happened in Canada and the Netherlands, but hardly in the US. In fact, medical education departments are now largely extinct in the U.S. because it's very difficult to find funding. There are no funds for medical education anymore. What is left in these schools is a number of individuals taking care of teacher training, taking care of uh, assessment, often uh, administrative staff only. In these schools, there is no space for fundamental, long-lasting research projects such as the assessment project at Maastricht or the studies in problem-based learning and medical expertise at the same institution. And if opportunities are there, medical education research begins to bloom. For instance, there are eight medical schools in the Netherlands, and in the beginning of the 80s, Several of them adopted problem-based learning or engaged in other forms of educational innovation. And this state of affairs led to research and senior positions in these schools as well. Does it worry you that a country as large as the USA isn't supporting medical education research? Yeah, yeah, quite uh, problematic. One could say that since the Second World War, the United States emerged as a powerhouse of science. The best research in any domain was done in the United States, in particular also educational research. But it seems now that medical education research 
is no longer en vogue there. I personally do not know any colleagues engaged in medical education who have a tenured position and a continuous research program there. The winners of the Karolinska Prize from the U.S. are mostly retired. I am retired as well, but in my previous departments in Maastricht and in Rotterdam, groups of young professors, some of them my former PhDs, have emerged and do interesting research. Look at Academic Medicine, the journal of the American Association of Medical Colleges. This was the top journal in the field. They published the important new developments first. Now researchers look for other journals to publish. Uh, Academic medicine has become largely uninteresting because it now mainly publishes on administration issues and research papers published mirror that trend. There is no groundbreaking work done anymore in the U.S., I think this is why what Gunnar and Anastina did with KI Prime is so unique and important. What did it mean for you to be the first recipient of the prize? Yes, I was proud to be the first recipient of the prize. It led to a lot of interest. I was on uh, Swedish TV, it was on the national news in the Netherlands, and, and some people said, this is the Nobel Prize for Education. Of course, I did not object to that description. I felt it was a big honor, and it led to some jealousy among colleagues, demonstrating that uh, others also considered it an important prize. It did, however, not add much to my career, uh, because I, of course, already had some name in the field. And since most of my research was always directly funded by my university, I felt no need to go to funding agencies with a sticker on my forehead saying, first winner of the Karolinska Prize. But I guess what it does do is provide the funding, which, as you were saying earlier, is so severely lacking in many countries. Do you have any thoughts as to how we address this challenge of supporting and funding medical education research? I certainly think that the price has had a positive effect on the visibility of medical education research. And I think that was also the goal of its founding father and mother, Gunnar Höglund and Anna Stina Malmberg. This visibility is in particular strong in Europe. What you see is that in Switzerland, in Germany and in Sweden itself, there are growing medical education communities. Look at the most uh, presently most interesting journals in the field, Medical Education and Advances. They publish research overwhelmingly coming from Europe, with, of course, growing output from Asia as well. So the visibility of medical education as an interesting field of study has indeed increased as a result of the price. And most people do not know that the volume of research published in the health professions education field is a factor of three bigger than the volume of research published in general educational journals, like uh, the Journal of Educational Psychology, Higher Education, Contemporary Educational Psychology, etc. In fact, many innovations in general education come from our field originally, like simulation, simulated patients, 
assessment of performance, problem-based learning. So the science of medical education, in my view, has really a bright future. So what are you excited about for the future of medical education? You should realise that the first generation of researchers was essentially amateur. They had no particular knowledge of the field. They came and started doing things. I, for instance, was a psychologist with a training in statistics. I knew nothing about medical education. Jeff Norman had a PhD in nuclear physics. And because he had some statistical skills, he was hired by McMaster University, initially as a research assistant. So we were amateurs, learning the trade on the job. However, in the meantime, the field has professionalized itself. Masters in medical education were established to train researchers and developers for the field. I myself established in 1990 a Master in Health Professional Education in Maastricht. And I see now, to my joy and satisfaction, that many colleagues in the field are graduates of that program. My successors in Maastricht have established a PhD program that is enormously popular and graduates, I think, about 10 PhD per year. It means that this maturation of the field will have positive effects on the future. I have no doubt about it. And finally, what's next for you? What are you working on at the moment? I have a continued interest in uh, medical expertise. Together with my colleagues at Erasmus Medical Center, Sylvia Mameje and Laura Zwan, I have begun to study the causes of medical error in diagnosis and how to counteract it. You should realize that uh, about 20% of errors in clinical medicine are cognitive errors, results of uh, mistakes in reasoning. Sylvia Mameja and I have developed a procedure called deliberate reflection that has been demonstrated to be an effective vaccine against diagnostic mistakes, at least in laboratory experiments with residents. Now we are in the process of testing the procedure, testing deliberate reflection in the real-world setting in clinical practice. I see also some continuity in my approach to all the issues related to medical expertise. You remember that in the beginning I told you of the schism between those who maintain that expertise is essentially a thinking skill, a superior reasoning faculty, and those who believe that it is a function of superior knowledge. A new testing ground of the applicability of these two competing paradigms is the study of cognitive bias in diagnostic decision-making. Some believe that bias emerges from lack of the right thinking tools, from faulty reasoning. My team in Rotterdam, however, has shown in a number of studies that if physicians have sufficient content knowledge, they avoid mistakes. In experiments inducing bias in residents, we have demonstrated that when participants are provided with relevant knowledge of features discriminating between lookalike diseases, they do not suffer from the biasing attempts. 
So this is the kind of research I'm involved in, and I'm very excited about it. Professor Henk Schmidt. And that marks the end of this series celebrating the Karolinska Prize for Research in Medical Education and exploring the research of the previous winners and the 2019 Fellows. Thank you for listening and for your support, and we hope to return again soon. For now, goodbye.